Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Happy Mama Movement podcast. I'm Amy Taylor-Kabaz. I would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on which this podcast is recorded as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And as this podcast is dedicated to the wisdom and knowledge of motherhood, I would like to acknowledge the mothers of this land, the elders, their wisdom, their knowing, and my own elders and teachers. Welcome back, mummers. One of the amazing things about matrescence and this theory of what happens to us when we become mothers is that it's universal, whether you are in Australia, America, or Africa. Each and every one of us, as we become parents and move through our experience of motherhood, there will be similar aspects of this identity shift and change. I love that idea. I love the universal idea of this experience. And yet also within the experience of matrescence, there are unique elements, of course, depending on where you live, the color of your skin, the access you have to support and to resources, to your gender, to your sexuality. There are so many different elements that also add and change our experience of matrescence. That's why I really wanted to speak to the two powerhouse women that you're about to hear. Uzma and Zaiba are the hosts of the amazing podcast, Mummying While Muslim. I spoke to both of them separately because they both have such huge stories and so much wisdom to share. And what I really wanted to hear from them is both their experience of matrescence and the universal experience that it has been and what it is like to raise children as Muslims in this day and age and to be a mummy as they are Muslim, as they describe in their podcast. And what I learnt is that we are phenomenal as women, as mothers. We will do anything we can to change this world for our children and the courage and strength we find within ourselves to do that. And I also understood so much more about the experience of being a mother and Muslim that it really inspired me to continue to understand the unique experiences around the world. I hope, I know you will feel that too when you hear these two women's stories. Enjoy. (laughs) 
Zaba, welcome to the podcast. I'm incredibly excited to be having this conversation with you from the other side of the world. Welcome. Literally, you're like, we're literally on the other side of the world. So I am so excited that we can make the time work. I know you're waiting to put your kids to bed. I've just dropped mine at school. Here we go, which is kind of a great place for us to start because the intention I have with this conversation with you is to look at both the similarities and differences when we are talking about the experience of motherhood and matrescence. You are the founder of the podcast and executive producer of Mummy While Muslim, which you were just explaining to me has a global audience now of not just Muslim listeners but also many others. And we're really at, uh, I would say, the forefront of this conversation of understanding mothering within this context. So perhaps it's the best place to start explaining why you started this podcast and where this passion for this conversation began. Well, the reality of the situation is I tell people when I became a mother, it, it truly changed my life. And in the most amazing way. And this is not saying I didn't have my ups and downs. Of course, everybody, everybody does, right? And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But the reality of the situation is based on my past um, and the trauma that I went through. Having my son saved my life. And it saved my life because I had to become a better person so that I can be the best mother for him. Mm -hmm. At the birth of my son, he saved my life because I recognized that it wasn't just me. I I was something bigger than what I had ever thought or hoped I would be in being somebody's mother. So that kind of started my journey um, to self-improvement and um, combating inter, intergenerational trauma, which in, in my community they, they had, because I was determined not to let it pass on to that next generation. Um, so, you know, a lot of people say that and they think it's, you know, funny. And I'm just like, no, really, truly, um, becoming a mother saved my life in so many different ways. So when I became, when um, f- for me to start the podcast, it actually occurred Um, because I uh, was traveling and I am what they call, um, a passing. I I'm not necessarily, I'm, I'm, I'm ethnically ambiguous. Okay. Let's put it that way. I I just recently heard that term, by the way, where people don't quite know what I am, where I am until they see or hear my name. Then they want to know what, what, who, where I'm from. Right. Whereas my kid, my son specifically, he looks just like me, but he's a darker shade of me. He had gotten stopped Um, at the airport. And I'm, of course, the caboose behind four kids, not sure what the heck is going on. And he looked older than what his age was. And of course, I wasn't traveling with documents for him because I'd never had to. And honestly, I'd never had to worry about that. And after about 45 minutes to an hour, they finally let us through all of that. And then my son came to me and said, why did that happen? And then I had to tell him, honey, like you, our last name is Hassan, which is probably one of the most Muslim last names that there is. And you might be more visibly Muslim than I am. So your life experiences are going to be different than mine. And I didn't have any other resources 
to, to provide him or give to him because quite frankly, it wasn't my experience. It wasn't my life experience. So I contacted my co-host, my now co-host, who was happened to be a childhood friend because she was a speaker on Islam and these types of things. And I just asked her, I'm like, listen, I'm having to explain this to him. There are no resources out there from our particular generation, as in we were born there and our kids are native born, right? They're third, second, third generation American Muslims. And we couldn't find the answers. And on our quest to find the answers for ourselves, that's how we started Momming While Muslim, by bringing, if we didn't have the answers to share those experiences, we brought experts in the field to kind of speak to their, their expertise so that we can be that resource for American Muslim mothers, you know, on these unprecedented times that our children are kind of carrying the burden of an event that happened before they were born. And what does that feel like? How does that, what does that impact? How does that impact them? And how we, as that generation that saw the before and after, and I'm talking about September 11th, which is here in the States, how that impacts our, our mothering. Um, Cause we definitely have to deal with um, certain experiences that perhaps even our parents didn't have to yes. deal with. Please excuse my ignorance. I really mean that because obviously mm-hmm. on the other side of the world, I don't understand. You didn't have that exactly. I mean, September 11 shook the whole the whole world, of course. Yes. But I was not aware that the fear and perhaps judgment towards Muslims in America was still as strong as it would have been post-September mm-hmm. 11 down here in Australia, and I genuinely mean this, I'm sorry if this um, offends anybody, but down here I thought, um, I assumed that we had moved past that a bit, but but no. Yeah, one would hope so. Mm. And you know what's so funny is we hoped that too. We hoped that. And I shared this recently on our podcast. My son um, just started college. So, of course, he was doing, I don't know how it is in Australia, but he was definitely starting to do all the college applications and things like that. And he happened to, he must have printed something. The one time the printer actually works, right? It usually doesn't work unless, unless like, it's a random occurrence that it works. And I happened to pick it up, his essay. It was the first time I had read his essays And the first line, and this, by the way, he's a kid who was captain of the basketball team, all stars, all district, um, student counselor, all of the, all of it. Like he is Zach. I always joke. He was Zach Efron in high school musical. Like he's that kid. And I picked up the, uh, the essay and the first line said, I grew up in the shadow of the fallen towers. And Yeah. And I started crying because here I was thinking, I literally am in the field trying to do the work to help dispel and combat Islamophobia. I go and we speak at, you know, synagogues and mosques and churches. And, you know, I'm that person here in the in the Virginia area. And, you know, of course, my kids have come to all the interfaith things and he still feels the effects of it. And that was when I was like, if he, Mr. Captain of the basketball team, mom who's a speaker, mom, feeling it, what hope does somebody who isn't all of the things, what are they experiencing? And that really hit home to me as someone who thought they were woke, you know, for lack of a better phrase. 
on how it's impacting our youth, how it's it's a PTSD thing. So yeah, one would hope, you know, that it was 21 years ago that it wouldn't, but all these things have trickled down and it impacts our children day to day. And the reality of the situation is we, as that, that second generation American born Muslims, we have to be the person, like I always say, the first generation comes here to survive. The second generation comes here to kind of thrive. And our hopes as that sandwich generation is so that our kids can be, you know, that, that catapult, like we can push them forward, but it's hard to do that when they're still being pushed down. And that's where I feel like the podcast really helps dispel some of those um, negative things um, that people might think. And I feel like when we hear from our non-Muslim listeners, they say they can be a fly on the wall and kind of hear a little bit of something. Um, And if we can change one person's mind or one person's perspective on what it's like to be an American Muslim, we feel like we've done our our job well. And the thing is, we all have a similar job, don't we, as mothers, whether we are in America or Australia, whether we're Muslim, Catholic, whatever. Exactly. When you become a mother, as you so beautifully described, your son inspired this deep change within you. And the other thing that matrescence or the experience of becoming a mother does is it, I don't want to say forces because not everybody feels this, but it calls you into some kind of action or change in so many of us. And we understand this both neurologically, the changes that we experience in the brain now, but also in the Mama Rising coaching training that I teach, we call matrescence a spiritual awakening. Because in that experience of becoming a mother, you suddenly go from the small ego, this me and what I do in the world and what my thing is, to a higher version of yourself. And that is what we can be united around as mothers, isn't it? Because that's what you're really doing here. Yeah. And we call the ego the nuffs, right? So... Um, and it's about, um, and, and we, I feel the same way. It's a spirit. It's, we, we go through multiple spiritual awakenings within our lifetime, right? At different, at different versions. Um, and we're becoming different versions of ourselves. Um, and that's, I fundamentally believe that. And um, we call it parenting from the nafs, right? It's, it's taking, and it's almost different because you're taking that ego, that self, you know, preservation to help, and you're putting it aside and you're now saying, okay, I am literally living for somebody else and what can I do and how can it, and to your point, as it's being studied from a biological perspective, we change internally. It's not just a, hi, I've become a mom and da, 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 da. No, your DNA alters and change. It changes mm-hmm. to kind of create space for this new version of yourself, it's it's like a metamorphosis, yes. right? And it's such an amazing thing that I feel like more people, I, I personally feel like it was a gift to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is speaking as somebody who was like, I'm never going to be a mom. This is not my thing. This is not my journey in life. So I was literally the first person of my friend group to become a mom. I was a mom in my early 20s. And it was just one of those things where it, it went from this is never going to be my thing to it 
all, all my other things surround yeah. this one thing that really truly defines who I am as a person. Isn't that interesting? Because I was the same. Not that I ever said I don't think I'll ever be a mum, but they're definitely like on the list of priorities for my life. Motherhood would have been way, oh, way yeah. down. It was like, like I was going to change the yes. world. I, I, I mothered <laughs> my siblings, right? So I was like, yeah, this is not happening yes. for me. I've already been there, done that. I'm not doing. It's a very different thing when you physically birthed those babies and gone through those pains, let me tell you. Yeah, exactly. And I think when that changes your identity in such a profound way, that's when it really sort of wakes you up. So I would love to explore two things with you. I think first Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to explore a little bit more about both yourself, your co-host and the other mothers you've spoken to about the experience of mothering these children with this stereotype, with this judgment, um, what we need to understand, what you would like us to know to tell our kids, like if we're going to be doing this together. And then Mm -hmm. secondly, I would love to hear from you um, the experience of mothering within Muslim religion, whether... um, like talk to us about how it's portrayed, how it's valued, how it's respected, what is the traditional role of the mother. But perhaps first let's start with your experience with your children and what it's been like and what this means for them. So I always say I had my first set. Yes. <laughs> and my my oldest calls them the beta versions, right? Like where we do all, make all the mistakes and then they, their younger two siblings are the alpha because we learn better. But again, that's us evolving mm-hmm. as humans and as mothers and all that good stuff. So, um, but I, and I tell them, I'm like, you guys just got different versions of myself mm-hmm. and you're both equally as lucky because you just have a different experience with me. So we, we have to fix that right in the, in the very beginning, especially with your first, I was in my early twenties and he, he made me who I am. Right. So we grew up together. Um, so that's a very different relationship than with my nine-year-old you just saw running around here who I'm, I'm an experienced mom. I can kind of do it from the, you know, just out of like, I can see him from the back of my head because I'm nothing, but guess what? I have more um, confidence and he gets that version of myself. So that's where we're all alike, whether you're Muslim, not Muslim, what have you. Um, and the commonality is like with everybody, once you become a mother, like your love for that being, you want all the best things. And it doesn't matter color, religion, um, you know, sexuality. And as a mom of that child, you want to be all the things for that person and you want to save and, and, and help them make their way through the world. We all have that. And the reality is, you know, we are, I always come from the perspective as we are more alike than different. Mm. Um, and of course my, I'm raising my children, um, American Muslim. Um, and honestly, they're going to find their own path even within the realm of Islam and having that open dialogue with them so that they can understand and come to their own, um, under uh, their own version of what, their Islam is, I'm very supportive of that. It's the same, whether you're Christian, you're Jewish, whether you're, you know, uh, atheist, even if once you become a parent, that love for your child unites you to literally another soul forever, Mm -hmm. for eternity. Because that's how I feel. I feel like we will be together Mm -hmm. 
I mean, he might not like it, they might not like it, but we will be together for eternity. And that's kind of what I want. You see, you don't have a choice. I am, we are together, but we're the same. Like when my kids don't get picked for a baseball game or whatever, they're crying, they're upset. You know, when they're there, my daughter is downstairs, like she just finished taking the SAT, which is a college exam board. And she's trying to do her stuff. Like your, your 15 year old is probably doing exactly the same thing at school right now. They have the same anxieties. And honestly, as children and teens, specifically growing up in the social media world, guess what? As parents, we have exactly the same fears, right? Of the social media world, what they're doing, their, 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 their mental health, all that. And, and we have the added thing of the, the Islamophobia on top of it. Cause like, for instance, my kids cannot walk around even jokingly saying, I bombed a test, right? Like, even words like that, they can't really say. And, um, you know, my younger two kids don't look, they're also ethnically ambiguous, right? So they have to go out of their way to prove their Muslimhood to other people. So we have this unique thing that perhaps somebody else doesn't have, right? So if you have a question we encourage people to ask versus assuming. And at least for in my family, we're very big on, I would rather you ask than assume or look up something that might not necessarily be an accurate reflection of who and what we stand for. And that's the number one thing I would probably tell people is, ask us. We are not scary. We want to talk to you. Like I'm sitting at basketball on the floor with you watching my kid play and just as excited, right? Except we just happen to believe a different version of, of your own religion. And by the way, it's just a version. I always say all of us are a tree, a branch, and we're just different branches. But the reality of the situation is our roots are exactly the same. Yeah, I love that. Um, do your children go to a Muslim school or a secular school, like a normal local school? <laughs> so because I have, and again, this is where I think when you talk to Uzma, she's going to have a very different mm -hmm. um, philosophy, and that's what makes us so great. Um, I didn't necessarily have the best experience, um, in like Sunday school and being accepted by, um, Muslim community as a biracial, I happen to be biracial and my mom, um, was white or Irish descent. And my dad is of Pakistani descent, which is what makes me ethnically diverse, uh, whatever ambiguous is what the term I keep hearing. Um, so I didn't have the same experience as she did. So I really wasn't accepted in the Muslim community or in the non-Muslim community. So I have always had to um, find my own connection um, with Islam. Mm -hmm. And and actually, I feel like I have a truer, deeper, more spiritual connection because I had to find it myself mm -hmm. um, and learn and read about it myself. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the philosophy that I have brought up with my children. Um, and not for any other reason other than we happen to live in a community that doesn't have that many Muslim people in our area. So I just took it upon myself to create that environment for them yes. um, within my own house. So they are very much raised in a secular space. Um, so I had to go out of my way to really uh, include the, the religion and the spirituality but for me and our family, it's not, religion is not rules, right? Like you have to do X and Y and Z. For me, Islam is truly a spiritual way of life. And that's how I model it for my kids. 
And I feel like that's how they're receiving it. Um, you know, all kids go through different spiritual, their own internal spiritual awakenings and, and explorations. And I would feel like in more traditional Islamic households, that wouldn't be encouraged. But for me, I definitely encourage it. And I definitely encourage them. Like I happen to have a master's in divinity. So I have learned and really truly studied other religions, not because I'm trying to dispel anything, but I really am focused on what commonality we have and what we can do as a community to increase um, that bridge between um, the religions so that we can make the world a better place, by the way, for our children, for our grandchildren. Um, and, and that's kind of how I've raised my kids. So that's my long-winded way of saying, no, they don't go to Islamic school. But what we do do is we practice our faith in every single thing mm. that we do. Mm, wow. What a beautiful answer. And to have studied this and to really have explored it. Um, it's been a passion. It's been a passion yeah, of mine. You can tell. So what does Islam say about the role of the mother? Can we understand a little about, um, yes, this divine opportunity that we are given um, to mother children? Uh, what, how have you been taught to view this and how is it seen? Okay, so there's a cultural aspect of it and what the religion actually says. So what I'm going to do is dispel the culture because I don't believe in that. And Uzma will probably be able to um, talk to you a little bit about the cultural aspects and the that version of it. But Islamically, it was probably, Islam has given the, the highest reverence to moms mm. over everybody. Mm. So there's a story that the pro somebody came to the prophet and said, okay, after God, who should I, you know, who should I respect or, 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 or you know, or revere? And um, his first answer was your mother. He goes, oh, okay, fine, fine, fine. But after your mother, next, he goes, your mother. And then he goes, well, after, I get that. He goes, no, your mother. And then your father. So it is said that the the heaven lies under the feet of the mother. So the mother is has that much important. And, and obviously this is all metaphorical, all that, you know, it's not an actual tangible thing. But the whole point is your relationship with your mother um, transcends any other relationship. Like it's that important. Uh, and obviously as moms, we should not take advantage of that, right? Like, you know, there is a whole, and that's where the cultural aspect comes in. And this is where all those issues like in using and abusing that power. But the, the reality of the situation is our, our thought process is our religion. The love was passed on through the laps of the mothers. Why? Cause we're that first line of defense. Mm -hmm. We're that first, um, educator. We're the first person uh, that they see. I mean, Obviously, there are exceptions, but we're the first person that they see. So it's a beautiful religion from that perspective because it really does um, revere the mother and the maternal figure. Um, and one of the things was like your, you know, because of the labor pains and the and and it's not even just the labor pains; it's the emotional um, journey that mothers have to go through. That in and of itself is its own reward reward system. Um, to get into heaven or whatever the case may be. Of course, for me, it's more of that's, that's kind of like payment for your journey because it's highly recognized the twists and turns that in all of, all of the things that the mothers have had to go through in order to be that 
the mom, the first line of defense in pretty much everything. I love that. I had heard, I'd interviewed someone else on the podcast, I can't remember if it was earlier this year or last year, who similarly said that if you go to the true center of the religion, mm-hmm. the mother is is everything and the role is so weird and respected and it's the cultural story, it's the patriarchy, it's mm-hmm. the way that we yes. have interpreted this that has actually changed it. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to talking to yes. your co-host. We're going to do Yeah, she, she will give you all experience. of the things with the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 honestly it's a very maternal um it's a very maternal religion in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, we got conquered and all of those types of things that that patriarchal um interpretation mm-hmm. of what we've been taught for for forever had changed. I mean, honestly, from an Islamic perspective, Islam was the first religion to give women the right to own property um, the and to even like to work, to do all of those things where it wasn't. And this is centuries before it was even done here in Western society. And honestly, it's traditionally in, in Islamic countries that we've already had female leaders, not in America. Mm-hmm. We're not ready for that. Mm-hmm. But in Islamic countries where people think we're backwards, guess what? It's our women that are leading countries. So this is this is also another thing people don't quite know. They see the, you know, the niqabi, the person that they feel are behind the veil or whatever, but a majority of the people are just like me. Mm-hmm. We're we're running the ho- we're running the households, we're running the show, we're we're in in the communities and we're the ones leading the first. Just see what's going on in Iran right now. It's the women that are leading this amazing um, revolution. It's the women that start doing that. Why? Because we're educated by women. So we understand where they're coming from. So that maternal aspect um, in Islam is very highly revered. And it's, it's when the culture comes in and obviously we're a very, you know, multicultural religion, that's the issue too. And we've been, you know, conquered multiple times and you pick up from different cultures. When you strip that and read the religion for what it is, it's a very different interpretation. And that's why for me in raising my children, I I don't prioritize um, them being around a, a cultural aspect. Not that I'm afraid, ashamed. It's more of I want them to see the true version of what I feel Islam is and what Islam can offer to you. Absolutely spectacular conversations, Ava. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to bring um, the both of you together in this as one big Mm -hmm. episode to continue this conversation. Yes. I genuinely want to say thank you for what you're doing with your podcast and the conversations no, you're having, the, um, the depth of understanding you obviously have, the insights that you're bringing to us, but also for so many Muslim mums who are listening to you and understanding how they then can talk to their children. So we truly yes. can make this, and that's our goal, right? We truly yes. want to make this a world where everyone understands each other <laughs> and treats each other yes. with at least that's respect. the goal right that's isn't it. that all the goal that's why we're all that's doing why. this that's why i mean i was like it's not a very you know sexy job right but we're doing this yeah. to kind of make the world just a little bit better as a result of it yeah absolutely thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you no thank you so much amy i really appreciate it and i can't wait to to hear the episode yeah thank you 
Hello and welcome, Uzma, to the second part of this podcast episode. Thank you for making time to speak to me. It's actually Ramadan at the moment, so to squeeze this in is really wonderful for you to do. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. So this podcast really is a conversation with the both of you about your experiences of matrescence and and motherhood, of course, and this amazing podcast that you are now creating for the world to help us all, I guess, to um, understand the experience of mothering while Muslim for both your children and for yourself. So what has your experience been? You're a mama of four. What has your experience been of becoming a mother, first of all? Ooh, you know, it was so fun to learn the word matrescence because I was like, oh, is that what that means? That horrible catapult into overnight losing your entire identity, priority list, some of your hopes and dreams. Like it wasn't great for me. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I had a postpartum depression and psychosis, which I was completely not expecting because that kind of thing was not going to happen to me. Even though my mom had warned me, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's in our family, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I was too smart for my own britches. I didn't take her seriously. And I fell very hard. It was not, you know, like you have so many things in your birth plan. That was never in my birth plan. (laughs) Um, And I, I had no contingencies for it. And I'm really a plan A, B, and C kind of person. And so it threw me for a wild loop for several years. And my first three are very close together. So Mm -hmm. I never really got to recover because it was like pregnancy on top of pregnancy, nursing on top of nursing. So I nursed all of those kids for two years um, or more for the last one. Yeah. Um, And I never got a handle on it until I think I was married for like four years and had two and a half kids under my belt before I was like, wow, the the therapist was like, you haven't recovered. You haven't faced these demons yet. And so um, that entry, um, was kind of like, you know, like we say, we're, we all become mothers the day we birth our baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went down that canal right with my son, like wild and crazy ride. So mm-hmm. it wasn't great. <laughs> when you look back at it now, how do you feel about it now to have a look at that? I mean, first of all, to be almost warned that this is in the family, that makes it feel like there is a, um, there is a story a, an experience there of becoming a mother that almost is generational. How does that feel to you now when you look at it? Um, it makes so much sense, you know, because I'm a really big proponent of Eve theory, which let me know if you're not familiar with it, but I'm like, of course, our histories are traceable back to the beginning of time. So Eve theory uh, posits that our, um, so we have our regular DNA that we pass on to our children that gets, you know, spliced with our partner's DNAs to make a baby, mm-hmm. um, to make this genetic code for a person. But then we have little parts inside of our, each of our cells. And one of those really important parts is the mitochondria. And that's called the powerhouse of the cell. It makes all of our energy that we use it like, you know, is responsible for breaking glucose down into energy and in all of our bodies regardless of your gender. Um, But the mitochondria has its own DNA and it is specific to the mother. And when you're doing 23andMe and all these genetic kits, it's testing your mitochondrial DNA. So you're getting your maternal side because what Eve theory says is that because all of your cytoplasm and all of those little magical parts inside of the cell, including the mitochondria, come from the egg. They can't come from the sperm because the sperm is only good for one thing, which is that thread of DNA that it 
pops into the egg and then it dies, you yeah. know, but the egg goes on. So our children's powerhouses are from us. Our powerhouses are from our moms and our grandmothers. And if the theory is that if we trace that mitochondrial DNA, we can take it back to first woman. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, generationally things can get passed down and there's cell memory. There's probably mitochondrial memory there too. I'm not sure about that part, but I love that so much that historically I feel connected to women across all boundaries, across even time and space. So I love that. Um, but it's not like you have that great focus or that great understanding at the time. Now, in hindsight, I really just want to hug that bubble of time and hug that mess on the floor that was me for so many years and be like, you know, it's going to be okay. And people tell you that, obviously, when you're in that position, but you can't see the light when you are in the throes of that kind of depression until you get treatment, until you take ownership uh, of your health and your history and you start, you know, getting down and doing the dirty work, which it took me about four years to do. Wow. I love that. Thank you for explaining that. I've heard bits of that, but not of that so clearly. So that's a really amazing understanding. Now you also have a daughter, which mm. means that that thread has been passed down as well. And so what does that mean to you now to see um, the possibilities of this generational thread? Mm -hmm. and how we should be doing it differently. Yeah, I think uh, we don't need to wait until um, people are adults to talk about mental health um, and how critical it is, just as critical as getting all your vitamins, getting your exercise, getting your sunlight, all the things that we teach our kids from early ages, but also giving them the words. So I learned very early on to give them the words, you know, like as Muslims, we believe that the first thing God taught Adam was words, <laughs> gave him the words for everything. So teach kids what the emotions are. And then, you know, to be very frank about our family histories, what regardless of what they are, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Like, you know, we're not responsible for the illnesses that anyone incurs in the family, especially including mental illness. So just destigmatizing it from the beginning and saying, we can talk about this, you know? So my kids, I feel like as elevated as they are and as emotionally intelligent as they are, they are still teenagers. So when they're talking about, you know, their colleagues and their peers at school, they'll be like, oh, they're so emo. They're so, you know, emo <laughs> is like, I know you know this word because you have teenagers too. And I'm like, just because somebody wears black and paints their nails black does not make them emo. It's just a look. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, they, are joking amongst themselves, but, you know, I try to remind them, you know, if they actually have a problem, like you should probably be the first one to walk up and ask them, are you just emo because this is fashionable or are you emo because there's something on your heart that you need to share with somebody? If so, I'm a safe space for that. Um, so since they've been little, they've known things like depressed, they've known things like anxiety, they've known things like overwhelm. Um, and they can explain that to me so that I know how to, um, support them through it. And the goal being that, you know, if you've experienced these at your various stages of life, because we all will, that there is somebody here who is your safe space and always will be just because mm -hmm. I've gone through it. So I, I completely get it. And I sharing that was really important. Like I'm not above experiencing any of those things. Nobody is. There's no uh, rhyme or reason to who gets who feels those things and why. But it's our job as a collective people to support anybody who's going through it. So in the first part of this podcast interview, we spoke a little bit about the experience of raising your children in America at the moment as Muslim and the concerns, the, I guess, almost the weight of worry at times and how you speak to your children about that and how 
uh, this podcast is also about trying to break down some of these barriers and misunderstandings. What has the experience been for you to raise your children at this time? Yeah. Um, it's a little scarier now because I have one in high school. And so a lot of his best friends are graduating. And these are kids that he grew up with, like some from the time he's had memory, he's had memories of these friends. And, you know, boys get into some ridiculous situations. And so you have to kind of school them like, okay, I need you to be careful in this instance because he is an adult and he will be tried as an adult, even though he, I think, is white passing. He has a very ethnic name. He has a very ethnic family name. Like all of his family is from back home. Um, countries that have been on watch lists, even though he was born and raised in this country, he's going to be tried as an adult. He will be tried completely different than a white person who shoots up a private Christian school because he had a concussion playing basketball. Even though this child was also a basketball star, probably had like half a dozen concussions himself. He's not going shooting up anything. But if he were to get in an accident with you or got into a tiff with you out in public, he's going to be treated in the public court of opinion in America very differently than somebody who is actually white. So to protect your friend, you can't get in these sticky situations. You need to be more careful. And of course, I get the whole, you're so overprotective mom. And, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, please don't test me. I don't, want to, I don't want to be right in this situation, but I have seen for the last 20 years how right I am because you know we have so many famous cases of even when a Muslim man has been proven innocent, there is public opinion forcing him, dragging him back into the courts over and over and over, wasting his time, wasting his money, wasting his resources, most importantly, wasting his newfound freedom after like 20 years of being incarcerated for completely false charges. So I'm like, there are precedents for this. So that's why we're telling you this. And so, you know, my husband says, let them learn by experience. And our goal as mothers is no, we never want our children to have those kinds of experiences because they will ruin your life, if not scar you for life. Yeah. So what has that been like for you as a mother to have to have these conversations? How does that feel? Yeah. I mean, I think the best way that I can describe it is when at seven years old, you know, at that time my son was in public school and he came back to me and was like, hey, mom, are we ISIS? And I was like, what? Why would you ask that? And he was like, uh, oh, I was telling, you know, my kids are very proud of their religion. They wear it on their sleeve. They always have. They were born and raised in our mosque. Um, and so he was, I guess, talking about being Muslim in public school. It's, it's a big no, no. Um, so he did. And one of his friends, you know, at seven year old, just, I think, I think innocently turned to him and said, Oh, does that mean you're ISIS? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was not a word that I had taught my son yet. So I had to teach my son at seven years old, what ISIS was. And I wasn't prepared. It almost feels like the floor comes out from under you. And anytime there's an incident with a Muslim child like, being bullied by like a teacher or an administrator at school, I feel like that's what it feels like. The, like the seat is out from under you or the floor is out from under you. It doesn't have to be my child. It can be completely somebody else's child. But I collectively feel like it's our responsibility to mother all of them, regardless of you know what their backgrounds are. So that's the best way that I think I can describe it is just you lose your breath every single time, but you have to hold it together especially if you're with the kids, like you can't change your face, you can't change your tone, you have to be very even keel and like clinical about it. And I don't know, maybe different people handle it differently. For me, that's how I can kind of keep my wits and like have a conversation and deal with my emotions at the same time that I'm trying to kind of guide theirs and um, protect them in some ways. Mm, wow. 
Yeah, it's it's a lot to hold, especially um, it's very different here in Australia, obviously, in some ways because we don't have the accessibility to guns and to um, that part of the concerns that you must all hold. But at the same time, there is a unifying factor in how much we want to protect our children and make sure they're okay and not have them bullied for whatever it is that they may be facing. And yet I can also understand what your husband is saying is let them discover it, let them experience it. We can't wrap them in cotton wool. We can't protect them. They have to be out there. And that on a daily basis is what mothering is about really, isn't it? It's how much do we let them go and how much do we protect them? How much do we... I heard this wonderful um, conversation recently around do we want to change the world for our children or change our children for the world? Mm. And I think it's a bit of both. We want to make sure our children are resilient and courageous and brave and strong because the world is, unfortunately, the way it is. And yet at the same time, we don't want to change our kids because they are who they are. We want the world to Mm -hmm. change. So how do you feel when you hear that? You know, it's kind of, I have two feelings about it. You know, at first it's like, oh, that's so nice. And the second is like, no, (laughs) you know, we all do. I kind of want to, I think we all do kind of want to bubble wrap to some extent, but you know, learning through experience, I think is really important. I'm an unschooler. And so I do unschool my kids. Even my oldest was unschooled for three years prior to entering high school because I really wanted him to be an independent thinker and not be, you know, part of the uh, industrialization complex that is American education. At least I can't speak to Australia, but um, he was really excited to go to high school. I mean, he was lamenting the whole time. I think his last year of unschooling where he was like, I I really want to go back to school. I really want to go back to school. And I said, just hang on. It's just going to be next year. You can start then. And you will understand why I'm explaining to you why it's so important that you unschool now so that you are ready to face high school later. And he does come home every day. He's like, yeah, today somebody asked me, like, if I had a bomb in my backpack. Um, Today somebody, like, you know, asked me if I would, like, disintegrate if I had the pork on their plate or if can they sit down because there's ham on their plate. And, you know, like, not out of concern or out of respect, just out of, you know, mocking him. Um, There's a football player in his class who was regularly bullying him over his religion. Um, And even though my son is a taller guy, he's still only, you know, he was 14 when he started um, high school. So he's on the younger end and it took him a little bit to figure out what was going on. And even though I had given him little tidbits of warning that this could happen, um, because this is America, uh, he dealt with it for several months before he finally started talking about it. I was like, listen, I think you just need to mention it to me. Of course, at first I'm like, I am going to the principal's office. I am like burning the town hall down. Like, let's go. And he knows how I roll and was like, I, and you know, I was furious because he had not told me for so many months. And he was like, this is why I didn't tell you because you take it from zero to a hundred and I don't need you getting people fired over this or making like a media circus out of this. I want to learn how to handle this because if I have to do this the rest of my life, this is my learning ground right now. Like I'm, I'm doing it the way I need to do it. And he was like, I will be really mad if you talk to anybody about it. So it's really hard for me as a doer and an intervener. And, you know, what I think, you know, I think I'm a little bit of a change maker. I want to speak out against any injustice, but he has his own way of dealing with it. And I have to stand back and realize, okay, this is the unschooling process working. I have to let him do it his way. But the second I sense that there's danger involved, like that's when I'll jump in right now. 
you know, I think it's ordinary growing pains, like stupid high school kids with another stupid high school kid, like they're all being stupid together. Um, and I'm hoping that my son will find a way to make lasting change on his campus himself. Oh, wow. It sounds like it. Is that the goal behind the podcast for you? How did this come about? Uh, the podcast was uh, the brainchild of Zeba because at the time that she mentioned podcasts to me, I had no clue. I had heard about them. I had no idea how to listen to them. This is back in, what, 2017, I think. She had an experience that was pretty harrowing for her family, and it was the first time they had gone through it at the airport, which we call hashtag flying while Muslim. The rest of us were very visibly Muslim. Her family is, you know, typically white passing. But when her son hit that, you know, pubescent man looking age where he's still just a 14 year old, but has like man size, he was he got the Muslim man treatment at the airport. And so she called me asking for resources. How do I talk to my son? Because this has never happened to us before. And we don't know how to deal with this. And I was like, Oh, girl, like, let me tell you, I'll find the resources. And then lo and behold, there were none. There was nothing written, print, audio, visual for our families to go back to and say, this is how you talk to your kid when this happens with TSA, or if this happens on an airplane. Um, never, there was never anything. So I got back to her and I said, I'm sorry, I couldn't find anything. Um, and she said, well, would you be willing to talk about this on a podcast? And I said, sure, no problem. What's a podcast. Um, <laughs> and so that kind of launched our conversation of, well, maybe we should start something. Maybe I'll have you on as a guest and then let's go do research and then we'll reconvene motherhood and life happened. It took like 18 months for us to remember. In the meantime, I discovered uh, a Christian pastor's podcast and another podcast. And those are two that I regularly listen to. And especially with the Christian pastor, she was saying things that completely jive with Muslims. But anytime you say son of God or Jesus Christ, like Lord and Savior, whatever, like Muslims, there's a huge contingency that will just turn off. And they're like, oh, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I didn't want that. I said, we need this for our community. We need this for mothers. Because had I had this when my son was born, I think I would have suffered a lot less. Um, I would have caught myself a lot earlier if I knew that there were all these amazing resources in our community to support me and carry me through this motherhood. And I wouldn't have traumatized myself. I wouldn't traumatize my husband, my children. Let's do this. So I called her back. and was like, we are going to do this. And I think within six months, we had a podcast. Why do you think if this podcast had been there when you were starting your experience of motherhood, it would have been so different? You know, um, when you are first launched into motherhood, depending on, you know, I, I think whether you breastfeed or bottle feed or whatever, there are so many periods when you're the only person awake, it feels like in the world at night with your baby. Um, and the world just kind of is still. And so the things that I found to fill up that space was, um, it was something terrible on TV. I think it was like the tutors at the time. <laughs> For one of the babies, it was like tutors. Um, I was diving into social media a lot. And, you know, social media can fuel sometimes um, the depression that you're feeling. And at the time, the Syrian refugee crisis was happening, all kinds of things. Now, it was a double-edged sword. It helped me get more involved in the refugees, but um, it was really heavy, you know. So it's like mm -hmm. I'm already feeling like heavy and weighed down by my own personal stuff. And now the weight of the world is on my shoulders because I'm, I'm putting it there. Had I had podcasts or something else, you know, mm -hmm. with some hope. Because I, I do think that podcasts offer that, even the true crime ones, like there's a hope that this will be solved or there's a hope that something good will come of whatever this tragedy is. And so, you know, I feel like we offer that on our, our podcast for moms like, hey, this is a hard period right now, but then you have this to look forward to. Or you have these 17 resources for this one issue that we're all going to experience it. Use one of these. Um, and I think that that would have helped me. That's why I say that, you know, had I been listening to just the audio, my heart would have been... Um, a lot more at ease than it was.
Yes, and to see yourself in the stories. This is what's so important and so yes. amazing with these resources is that, you know, non-Muslim mothers can learn so much by listening, but the ones that are Muslim and feeling like they look around and think, oh, nobody is like me, nobody's experiencing this. When you break that wall down, that's when you finally don't feel like you're on your own. Exactly. Yeah. We're recording this during Ramadan and when we were uh, emailing back and forth, I shared with you an article I read here in Australia about the experience of mothers going through this month-long Ramadan. And um, I found it fascinating and, again, once again, really, I guess, drawing back that curtain of um, secrecy or difference that we don't always see because the stories are not always told. And to read about the experiences of these women, it was a story around women in Melbourne who this month are still trying to work their normal job, their normal jobs during the day, have their children, of course, and all of life is continuing, and then also planning around this nighttime, eating the traditions and the rituals of Ramadan. And it was a really insightful understanding of these powerhouse mothers and how they balance it this month. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is like for you during the month of April? Yeah, it makes me really grateful in um, in my life to know that the Ramadans that I have catered as a mother, like this part of my life, I've done that. I've catered, you know, I've customized it to my lifestyle. So my work had to revolve around Ramadan, not the opposite way, which, mm. you know, not everybody has the luxury to do that. So I realized how privileged I am. I was employed. Um, early on in my motherhood. And I, again, had catered my job to be around my children because motherhood, essentially, I that was the identity I decided to wear. Like, that's how I identified first. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, well, as a Muslim and then as a mom. Um, mm -hmm. So it was always, well, during Ramadan, like I only worked night shift. Well, during Ramadan, I'm not working for 30 days. Very simple, you know, because uh, these are the 10... These are the holiest nights of the entire year and the last 10 nights of Ramadan, which is what we're in right now. Ramadan will be over on Thursday uh, in four days now. Um, and so we stay up at night. It's not required, but it is highly recommended. And it is specific to Ramadan where after the sunset, you know, opening of the fast where you eat for the first time, it is family time, but it is also family time. So your community is also your family. This is very critical to Muslims. And so you get together with the community at the masjid. Some people will do it at their house if they don't have a masjid, but it, it's like many families convening together. In our case, it's about 150 families at our masjid family. Um, and you stand and you pray all night. And then in the last 10 nights, you don't just do that once, you do that two or three times. And each of those community communal prayers are taking about an hour. So think about that. That's three hours in the dark after the sun has set that we are committing to do that. And it's not early. I think in Australia, it's later, just given the uh, hemispheric factor there. So you're, it's not that the fast is over and, oh, now you can relax and eat all night long. You're eating all night long to stay awake for those night prayers. So as a mom who has work in the morning, who has responsibilities in the morning, the kids who have school in the morning, you know, there's a lot of things to think about. Like, okay, can I stay the night tonight because my son has to be at school early for this project? Or, you know, my child has an appointment or, you know, my husband needs me to do these errands in the morning before I go into work. So um, on top of that, there's a lot of women who do make it a point to save those special family recipes for Ramadan. So by sunset, I also have to make sure this huge spread, five course spread is like ready every night for 30 nights, you know? 
Um, luckily, I am not that person. So my Masjid family arranges for dinner during Ramadan night. So that's like a huge burden off of me. I only have to feed the eight-year-old really um, and make sure he has like mac and cheese or frozen chicken nuggets. I have no qualms about prepared meals uh, for my children. <laughs> Uh, if it makes my mental space easier. And then, you know, it is really important for at least me to spend the night at the masjid. Um, and that's why owning my own businesses is so amazing because I can sleep in in the morning after our dawn prayers are over and then go to work a little bit late, wrap up a little bit early, or just explain to my patients like, Hey, just call me if you have an emergency or don't call me between these hours at night. Cause I will be delayed in calling you back. Cause I'm in prayer and our prayer, you're kind of locked in. You can't look around. You don't really take a break. Like you have to walk away from the space and that messes with your, you know, the inspiration that you're trying to get. Cause this is where we're filling our cups for the year, our spiritual cups for the year to try to go on. It's our reset. Um, and as a mom, I don't think there's more balance as there is prioritizing. Like what is it that you want to get out of this month? How are you going to do it now? And what compromises are you going to have to make with your secular life in order to achieve your spiritual um, elevation, satisfaction, and your goals for the month. Because, you know, from the outside, totally acknowledging this is looking from the outside, it could be an enormous pressure and stress on the mother for that month to hold all of this, especially if the workplace and the larger community around her that aren't Muslim don't understand. This could be yet again another example of her holding it all for everybody. And so the more we all understand this, I'm hoping the more she doesn't feel like that. What would you say to that? I would say I lost a job over it because, you know, for years when I was employed, it was fine. My lead position understood. Like, you know, I would just pick up more shifts before Ramadan and after Ramadan to make up my time. And mm -hmm. they were cool with that. Well, then the lead position changed. And um, for the first time in like four or five years, like was like, no, why wouldn't you work in Ramadan? I was like, no, because I do night shift and I need to be at the masjid at night. And he was like, well, there's other male physicians here who do it. And, you know, there's other Muslim physicians here and they don't do it. Like, why do you? They're all men. They mm -hmm. go home and their meal is prepared for them. They go to the masjid all night and they come home and they sleep. They wake up to a breakfast prepared for them. I'm the one doing that work. So yeah. there's a huge, um, not just a religious discrimination thing, but a gender discrimination thing, like not realizing the invisible work of motherhood that exists. And I argue it's not invisible, it's visible, but people are ostriching their way through life, not recognizing us, not compensating us for all of the work that we do. Um, and so I gave him my resignation at that point. I quietly did the shifts that he told me to do. I missed the, some of the most important nights of Ramadan um, and memories with my children which were even more important to me, I feel like, or equally as important to me. And then I put in my two weeks notice. Um, and they were like, why are you doing that? I was like, you made me work during Ramadan. Like to me, it was like cardinal sin. <laughs> so um, I left the job because it was that critical to me. And, you know, again, these are not obligatory acts. They're all voluntary. But what is so mind blowing about voluntarily wanting to worship in a country whose first amendment says you have the freedom to worship? You know, and um, I'm just really happy that now after eight years of asking for it at the same hospital system, because I still worked in the hospital system as an educator. And um, uh, I had said, hey, we really need a diversity team. Like you guys don't know what the heck is going on when our residents are fasting in Ramadan. Do you know how hard it is to like do call? Um, I was well supported by the nursing staff. They knew that I was fasting. So they were like, oh, don't call Dr. Joffrey until after sunset. So they would hold orders for me until then or they would have food for me. 
Um, not all of our residents get that now because they're just a little bit busier. They're a little more scattered in the staff. It, you know, I mean, in the last four years in America, people have lost their grace and I feel like lost their compassion for humanity. And so they're not supported. And so I arranged for their meals to be delivered to them at the hospital. So they would have hot meals. Sometimes the cafeteria closes and at sunset, you can have graham crackers with peanut butter or whatever tuna sandwiches in the emergency room fridge for patients. So we had food, hot food delivered to them. Um, and nobody in the graduate medical education community was supportive. Nobody was notifying the residents that, hey, there's hot food for you guys downstairs. And so I was like, you need to have some kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that is doing this work to handle the residents and take it off of your plate. Because obviously, either you don't care, you don't have time. Now they created it and tried to keep me from applying for it because I have <laughs> been so loud and annoying through the years. And I fought. Um, you know, I had some words with them, too. And I fought. I got on the committee. And now we are Jedis, which is the justice uh, equity, diversion, and inclusion committee in the hospital system. So I'm super excited oh, to say that I am a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are a powerhouse. I am so inspired listening to, um, obviously, the experience of motherhood that you've had and what you've been through and your internal determination and clarity around this, but also the way that you are role modeling it to your children and to all of us and how we fight for and, you know, it is a shame that we have to fight for it, that you have to be that one who is that loud and who has to push this. But thank goodness that you are. It has truly been so amazing to speak to you. Thank you so much for finding time during this month. I am incredibly grateful now understanding what's going on in the background. So thank you so much for your time and your insight. And thanks for having me. This was really great to share. One of the main things I walked away from these interviews knowing in myself is that as mothers, we really are the powerhouses of this world and we can speak up and when we do, amazing things happen. We are the activists. We are the ones that will empower the next generation to see each other with kindness and compassion and understanding rather than fear. And when we talk to each other and when we bond and connect over things like matrescence, like our experience of being mamas, the world can change and heal. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. Let's spread it far and wide so our children really do have a better and safer world one day. Until next week. Please jump on social media, share with both myself and the amazing women behind the Mummy and Wild Muslim podcast and let us all know what you thought of this interview. And until next week, Satnam. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.